Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, you have to come up with the name of a cocktail to describe the summit, and it can't be a Singapore sling. Oh, man. How about the gin and regret? <laughs> Shaken but not stirred. Um, how about the... Uh, Is it a whiskey summit? It feels like a whiskey summit. It feels like an absinthe summit. An absinthe? <laughs> 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 like we're all high on wormwood. <laughs> okay, it's we... absinthe, grenadine, and seltzer. <laughs> what about arsenic? It's called a cherry high. <laughs> <laughs> arsenic laced rim. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. They serve those on Air Force One on the way back. Some yeah. military grade nerve agents on nice. the side oh, as well. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. 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 A VX cocktail. Mm-hmm. I Definitely. Like it. Definitely. It's very seasonal. Put a little dry ice in so you can get a mushroom cloud over the <laughs> like top that. of the glass. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Denuke Edition. I'm Shane Harris, Washington-bound reporter this week, not in Singapore. I would have loved to have gone to Singapore for the summit. Would you really? Okay, yes and no. <laughs> yes, because it'd be fun to be there. No, because you'd be watching it on a screen. Like right. they, All the reporters were in a press room. They flew halfway around from the, world. the world. to watch it on TV. Yeah, they probably ate yeah. some good food, though. The, yeah, Singapore, okay, I've been to Singapore. Everyone raves about the food. I don't know. I just never took with me. It's delicious, but I was like, I don't know. It's not my fave. Maybe it's just plus not my now cuisine. the Chinese are in all of their computers. And That's the true. Cell phones. That's yeah. true. Throw yeah. Did you see the USB away. that they were giving away? The little fan <laughs> just USB. Just a fan, just to keep you cool. Plug it in. <laughs> don't worry. And now we're going to turn up the heat in the holding room. I think yeah, it was right? technically from Singapore, but still. Is it? I don't know. I wouldn't. I st- also, like, I wouldn't use it over from Singapore. It's also, like, it's who like needs a USB plug-in fan just as an object in the world? It is always hot in Singapore, though. Don't plug things into your oh, Have you guys ever had a Singapore sling, by the way? I haven't. I don't even know what's in it. It's, it's awful. It's like pink. It's like, it's like fruit punch or something. Oh, I it? think I would like that. I have that. one at Raffles, because that's what you're supposed to do when you go to Singapore. Uh-huh. Not worth the wait. Okay. No. I would rather like sit in the Ritz-Carlton and have a very dry martini. I, I mean, any day of the week. But yeah, honest, I'd but, actually mm. rather have some straight bread yeah. in any day of the week. Sure. But. Well, whenever we open up all those big, beautiful hotels in North Korea, um, then beautiful we'll be beaches. able to sit on those beautiful beaches. Yeah. And, and drink uh, some and beautiful drink. cocktails. Mm-hmm. If I if I didn't already have an object lesson for later, it would be that absolutely bizarro video. That the, like the propaganda video yeah, that the one that we, we made. made, not you know, them. <laughs> okay, I, I understand that that seems really bizarre, but I can also see someone in the IC proposing it. We know this guy loves action movies. We know he loves you know, extreme sports. Like if I were coming up with a way to get his attention or get through to him, I might be creative and propose that. I, Do we think I, that's what happened? I have no idea. Maybe they look <laughs> at the U.S. president and think, this stupid shit works with you, so maybe we'll try it with the other world leaders. <laughs> it was. I, I especially liked like the uh, the cigar boat. Like speeding along, I'm like, 
where in North Korea is that? <laughs> I did anyway. like the article that said that a bunch of reporters had thought that the North Korean government had produced it and then had to be corrected that, no, 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 we made this we one. We made this one. Wow. We are here in the Jungle Studio with, you recognize those folks, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Shane. Ben is away. Not in Singapore, either. No. But sending us pictures of his beautiful views, which, ugh, that guy. He's the worst. <laughs> this week. On Just the- kidding. We love you. <laughs> um, we, we miss you. We miss you. Come back someday. Um, this week on the podcast, President Trump returns from the summit meeting with Kim Jong-un, praising the North Korean dictator, but castigating U.S. allies. A senior Senate staffer is indicted in an investigation of press leaks. And where did Trump's Middle East policy come from? Israel and the UAE, says a new expose. Um, let's start with the summit. Um, uh, we won't recap all of the optics, uh, both videos and handshakes and uh, American flags and North Korean flags on the same plane with each other included. Everybody saw that on TV. Um, Much less accusing our closest ally of stabbing us in the back. Well, we'll get to that, right? Yeah. We're going to tell the story in reverse chronological order. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My head is still spinning yeah. this week. So Good let's Lord. just let's just start with. I mean, okay, the the, the kind of the top line takeaway in this. Um, what did we come back with from the North Koreans, and what did we have to give away? I I will start with the proposition that this. Uh, at least first glance, it seems like a fairly imbalanced equation. It seems like we gave away a lot, including uh, the joint military exercises, which apparently took the South Koreans and the Pentagon by surprise. But Tammy, I mean, if you're just in, in the initial assessment of this, what's your kind of top level take on what do we come out of this with? So I think if you look at the declaration signed by the two leaders, Uh, you'll see that the language in there about North Korea's commitment to denuclearization says that uh, the North Korean leader reaffirmed uh, his country's commitment to the complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. In other words, the elimination not only of his nukes, but also of whatever nuclear weapons we may have there. Um, And that has been longstanding North Korean policy. So it doesn't represent a change. Uh, The language of the declaration makes it clear that it doesn't represent a change. And there's no language in the declaration that establishes a timeline for denuclearization, that establishes a process by which it will be negotiated, much less implemented, um, or even, you know, who will be involved in deciding what denuclearization means. Because, of course, the fact that North Korea has these nuclear weapons and um, engages in threats against its neighbors and its neighborhood is not only an American issue, it's an international issue. So I don't think that we got any commitments from the North Koreans. I think they said what they've said before, and we took it as though it were something new. Um, In terms of what the United States gave up, I mean, yes, the most concrete thing was Trump's surprise announcement that he was canceling what he called our war games with the South Koreans. Uh, We called them, and he called them provocative. And yeah, provocative and expensive. Right. So he clearly like took the language that they put in front of him and just adopted it wholesale and and probably felt like he had done that in fair trade for their agreement to dismantle a missile-based test testing site. Um, so that is one concrete thing that they agreed to do, is dismantle this uh, testing site. Um, but I think really what the North Koreans got 
from the United States is the summit itself, the international legitimacy, the the parallel stature with the president of the United States of America, uh, this incredible um, fawning press coverage uh, for the fact of a meeting. And that win is precisely what previous American presidents have uh, not wanted to give the North Koreans without getting something significant in return. And one of the things that strikes me, and Susan, maybe you feel this way too, but I, the kind of the solipsism that's on display in all of this, right? I mean, as, as Tammy just said, like the apparent lack of reference to anything that the North Koreans have said before and the fact that this is all essentially the same rhetoric just being recycled, but also the way that the denuclearization term is being used. I mean, it's almost as if... I, I question whether the president understood that when the North Koreans say denuclearization, they mean their weapons, our weapons, anybody else's weapons, the umbrella protection gone. And the president seems to think, no, 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 it just means their nuclear program. I, I can't, can't tell if they're imagine. talking past each other or they just mash it all together for the purposes of the of the statement. So I don't actually think that Trump has any policy goals or objectives here, right? I, I don't think, I think it, it doesn't matter to him what the meaning of the word denuclearization is because what he cares about is messaging and whether or not something is perceived as a win for him. And now maybe sort of the, the substance policy dovetails because the, to the, the extent to which he can sustain that narrative and that storyline of this having been sort of a, a substantive win, uh, you know, it, it depends on that. But, but I actually think he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily care about the difference because he, he doesn't really seem to have a particular sense of, of what the United States' posture in Asia should be. Uh, you know, uh, he, he has no instinct towards any form of conditions, right? So um, uh, no discussion about human rights abuses, no discussion about sort of what the North Koreans would have to do in order to be considered legitimate and, and sort of participate in in the, you know, the, the world order. You know, I, I'd note that today is the one-year anniversary of the death of an American citizen that the North Korean regime tortured to death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, apparently President Trump didn't even bring that up at all. And he had had their parents at the state of the union address too it's not like he shied away from that as a cause exactly and, and it's sort it of it, strange that he didn't bring it that's up, so that's so six months ago yeah, right. well <laughs> I, yeah i think i think you're putting your right on it. no i mean it's i think it's exactly what susan was saying is that he president trump set the narrative as far as he's concerned his job is done uh, he set the narrative that the North Koreans have agreed to do something good. And his tweets this morning, you know, are just another effort to sort of stake that claim and say, OK, now North Korea is no longer a nuclear danger to the United States, even though that's patently ridiculous. Nothing has changed in terms of their capabilities. They haven't even um, put out their own statement yet. They ha- Right. So, you know, it, it is it is simply an attempt to to uh create headlines that, of course, are more directed from his Twitter account directly to his political base than they are, you know, for the public at large. So I think that's absolutely right. But I think the other thing that's worth noting here is that we, and by we, I mean journalists, the foreign policy analyst community, the commentariat, we all look at this symmetry, the, the pageantry, the way he talked about having a wonderful relationship with this guy, the legitimacy 
given uh, Kim Jong-un from the summit, the failure to address human rights, the abandonment of Otto Warmbier's family, we look at this with horror because that's not what we that's not what we think America is in the world. And I think we this is a moment where we really have to take to heart that for President Trump, that stuff simply doesn't matter. He doesn't believe that the United States has any particular moral authority in the world. He doesn't believe in advancing human rights. Um, he may believe in getting a PR hit out of bringing a uh, an American who's been beaten into a coma home to die, but he doesn't actually care about the plight of American citizens in prisons in authoritarian countries, and there are dozens and dozens of them. Um, and and so I think this is a moment where we have to we have to take that to heart, and we have to quit pretending that he can somehow be persuaded to believe that America has some broader purpose. He clearly doesn't think so. So I, I think that's right. And I think um, what we've seen is other countries are hip to the fact that the only relevant confidence building measure, traditionally something where you you expect to see other people give something up, do something substantive, pay some sort of price in order to, to build confidence on the other side. Um, the only confidence building measure, measure that is relevant is personal flattery of Donald Trump. Um, the North Koreans have figured that out. The Chinese have really figured that, that out. And to the extent that there is one... Uh, pretty clear winner in all of this. Uh, it, it's probably China. Oh, yeah. So um, to the extent that we sort of, um, you know, uh, I I take that sort of this narrative of well we're further away from war than we were before um, is uh, is really lowering the bar for Trump right the the heightened rhetoric was a product of what he did so he walked us to the cliff and and I guess he walked us back a little bit more um, I do think we have to sort of to Tammy's point uh, take the world as it is um, and uh, and think about okay um, we we gave a lot away um, but we do have uh, talks now and there is some sort of relationship. This is a persistent security threat. Um, it is something that no other U.S. president over the past, you know, three decades has been able to to make serious progress on. The situation has gotten worse, not better. And so, is this one of those rare unicorn situations in which, even though Donald Trump didn't win at all? He sufficiently upset the status quo to the extent that there is the possibility to make real progress. Now, the answer might be yes, if you don't care about human rights, if you don't care about verified denuclearization, if you don't care about sort of uh, projecting American values abroad. Um, but, but I do... I, I do wonder sort of what are we left with and what are we left with now as the president, not just he physically leaves, his attention leaves. He's done with the issue. He's had the summit. He's done the photo ops. Whatever happens from here forward, unless it makes it to the front page of the paper, we're not going to he's not going to care about it anymore. And so now there's this huge U.S. bureaucracy that has to decide what to do with it. And so I, I am interested. Is there an opportunity here? Yeah. So, uh, look, I think it's a fair question to raise. I I would note that it's not only President Trump that escalated this situation. Um, Kim Jong-un started Trump's presidency by ramping up tests. And that was predictable. It was predicted. Uh, there was reporting to indicate that President Trump was warned about this during the transition by the Obama administration. It's what 
North Korean leaders have done to every American president when they've entered office as a way of getting attention. And previous American presidents have resolutely refused to take the bait. And what Donald Trump did here was take the bait and now give the North Koreans a huge amount of attention and a big PR win and legitimacy win by essentially, you know, recognizing them and agreeing to establish this dialogue and establish eventually normal relations. So, you know, just to put it in the broader trajectory here of what has happened. Um, but I think, Susan, the, you're right to focus on the dilemma facing the American public servants who are now tasked with following up on this. Um, and I might even include in that category of uh, those who deserve sympathy for dealing with this dilemma, Mike Pompeo. Yeah. <laughs> um, who's, who's, this is now his baby. This is yeah. now his baby. He's going to have to somehow figure out how to sustain this win, as you put it earlier, and and how to do that without having to go back to the president and ask him to do anything. Because you're right. He's checked this box. Yeah. He's moving on. And we're safe now, guys. We're right. safe now. The threat is over. And so if Secretary Pompeo comes back to him and says, you know, they're being hard asses. I need you to be a hard ass or I need you to impose a sanction. He's going to be like, why should I do that? This guy really likes me. Um, and so I, th for that reason, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to see any substantive gains out of the negotiating process that's going to go forward. Uh, I would wish that we could get there, but I think what's far more likely is that the North Koreans are going to throw up a bunch of roadblocks. They're going to get bulky, and uh, there will be no one on the U.S. end with sufficient backing yeah. to to get them to say yes. And you're already seeing Pompeo in some ways walk it back. He had a statement today that said he hopes for major disarmament by the end of the Trump administration, which is not... What the president was saying, which was denuke, 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 he was emphatic, including in an interview with George Stephanopoulos, that denuclearization means it's all gone. So this idea, like the frame has been set, but already we're kind of making the picture just a little bit smaller. I also want to just spend a couple minutes talking about um, <clears throat> the events that preceded the summit. We have this sort of extraordinary summit meeting with this glowing mutual affection that's displayed, which of course stands in extremely sharp contrast Such to the very cold shoulder contrast. that the president gave to our allies at the G7, and in particular to the, the fight that he got into uh, with Justin Trudeau, where the president appears to think he was slighted because the Canadian prime minister, when Trump was on the plane to Singapore, um, brought up the obvious uh, response to, uh, or was it was asked the obvious questions about how do you respond to the possibility that the United States is going to impose tariffs on Canada? And he, he responded to that. One of the things, I, as I was trying to <clears throat> sort of intuit, and I'm always find myself trying to psychoanalyze the president, and it's probably it's not the best game. thing to do. But one of the things I was, I was talking about this with somebody, and I wondered is, if what we're seeing in the contrast between the way he behaved with the G7 leaders and the way he behaved with Kim Jong-un is a demonstration of Trump's aspirations to leadership, which is to say, and it's been said before, that <clears throat> he does appear to have this tremendous deep affinity for strongmen and for autocrats. Uh, and seems to have a lot of hostility towards our traditional allies. And people have been trying to sort of puzzle that out as is that kind of a worldview or is this a foreign policy view? What if it's just as base as he aspires to be more like a Kim or a Duterte and actually sort of just thinks that the Merkels and the Trudeaus of the world are weak and too accommodating and he wants to be more like the guy he was hanging out with in Singapore? 
So I, I think it's even a more base psychology than that. I think he likes people who are nice to him and who flatter him and who he can do sort of transactional business with. And, and it just so happens that these sort of authoritarians, whenever you have no principles, no values, it's, it's easier to do business. But well, I think flattered him too. Yeah, but 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 he wasn't he wasn't well. Re- but and and that visit went relatively well, right? right? That but visit, yeah. exactly that yeah, particular. Yeah. Right? So whenever the individual engagement is about flattering Trump and accommodating him, uh, it tends to go well. When it is, uh, you know, a, a more hostile engagement or or there's more focus on sort of the tension, he throws a, a big giant. Well, fed. and to that point, he you know he called Kim Jong Un Rocket Man, right? I mean, had, that was not that long ago when it was Rocket Man and the Dotard, and these were the dueling. Right. Uh, uh, epithets. So I th- I think that that's one psychological explanation. I think there's one that maybe has less to do with politics and policy in the presidency even than that, which is that um, the G7 summit wasn't his party. Yeah. It was it's this collection of world leaders. They're all of equal stature. The summit is set up so that they all are of equal stature. And it was hosted by Canada. So he he didn't get to affect, shape the agenda or the schedule or anything like that. Whereas the Kim Summit was his show. Uh, he got to create it, you know, negotiated with the North Koreans, but they were so happy to have it. Uh, and he wanted it to be a big photo op. And so their interests were completely aligned, but he got to control it mm. and and be the star of the show. And so I think whenever he's in a situation where he's not the star of the show, um, he reacts badly to that. He doesn't want to be there. He cuts it short. He doesn't show up for meetings. Uh, and yes, he throws a tantrum. But I actually think that was a very strategic tantrum for political reasons. Uh, I think that, you know, the notion of all these European and the Canadian leaders staring furiously at him while he's sitting there with his arms crossed is something that the the Republican base just eats up. That's exactly what they want to see him do on the world stage. He actually accused the U.S. of leaking that photo, too. So, you know, I, I just think that there's it really is about him wanting to be the star and not wanting to compete and wanting to be in control and I don't think it's about anything more than that. Yeah, but there is one area in which he continues to not really be aligned with his base, and that's on Russia. I mean, one of the most uh, astounding uh, things that came out of the G7 meeting was Trump's, you know, suggestion, insistence, demand that Russia be readmitted to, I guess, readmitted to the G7, readmitted to the G8. However, we're gonna we're gonna play the numbers game. Um, that. It continues to be a uniquely Trump thing, right? The, the the trade war and the being tough on tariffs and all that other stuff. Yes, that's red meat to his base. But this obsession with accommodating the Russians in huge international political wins is – it just continues to baffle me. It's cheap though. I mean, so he made that one offhand comment and then let it go and look, Angela Merkel may end up in Russia to watch the World Cup this weekend. It's not like, you know, all these European powers shun Putin. They meet with Putin. They're dealing with Putin. They don't like Putin. They don't trust him. Um, but I, I think Trump can get away with that. Uh, he doesn't look out of step or isolated. Speaking of out of step, I have no transition for this <laughs> next one. 
That's so honest. Thank you. Sometimes the best way is just to be honest. Sometimes honesty is the best policy, which actually does transition you because go. you should never lie Perfect. to the FBI. You brought it back around. Never lie to the FBI. How many times do we have to say it? Don't lie to FBI agents. Honesty. Um, just don't talk to them. If yeah. you can't tell the truth, <clears throat> say nothing. <laughs> best uh, best advice also for when you are the now former uh Director of Security for the Senate Intelligence Community Camp Committee, uh, James Wolf, uh, uh, was indicted last week on three counts of lying to FBI agents who were investigating leaks of classified information to, information to journalists. Uh, importantly, Wolf was not indicted for leaking, but I think if you read the indictment, it's pretty clear that prosecutors and FBI agents suspect very strongly that he provided information to a number of journalists, uh, including one in particular, Ali Watkins, who is now a reporter at the New York Times and with whom he was in a romantic relationship for three years. Uh, according to Ali, uh, that relationship ended last year, and she told the New York Times uh, about that relationship prior to her beginning her new job. Uh, we can get into that in a bit. But what I want to really kind of focus on is um, this is, I guess, if you – well, he's not being indicted for leaking, obviously. Uh, and He's in court actually right now, so this – we don't know if he's going to plead guilty or not guilty. Um we know that there have been, or there at least are, uh, um, I think the number is upwards of 36 uh, leak investigations. The Attorney General Sessions has said triple the number as there was in the previous administration. The president is routinely going after leakers, uh, criticizing them, and talking about fake news. Um, what I, of course, you know, in a perhaps in a self-interested kind of respect, wondered when we saw this news is: Are we now seeing the tip of the iceberg, and that this is going to be the first in a number of leak investigations uh, that start to produce fruit? Um, but Susan, let me go to you on this too, because I mean, you have worked in a classified classified environment. I know you have views on uh, the leaking of classified information. What was your kind of first takeaway from this particular case? Uh, we can talk about the relationship between the reporter and, and the leaker himself, but like, what do you think we can learn about maybe where things are going with respect to leak investigations from this case? Yeah, so my first instinct is this is such a mess of a story, and and it's sort of it's the worst possible uh, set of facts in which to have the nuanced conversation about leaks. Right? It, it plays into it really does play is going to play into sort of Trump's favor or, yeah. or Sessions' favor on this stuff, and so uh, it, it really is quite unfortunate. So uh, first, I think we um, uh, he is accused of leaking classified information. So I've seen a lot of reporters on Twitter sort of, you know, well, he wasn't he hasn't been accused of leaking classified information, just of lying to the FBI. No, in the indictment, they accuse him of leaking right. classified He's information. Just He's just it. charged with the, uh, yeah. you know, with with lying to the FBI. Um, and, and I think it's worth noting the specific information that he's, uh, you know, essentially accused. And, and it's just an allegation at this point of leaking. And that's um, information about Carter Page. Uh, and, and essentially the identity the identity of a, of a redacted individual in a court filing um, in, in a counterintelligence investigation who we later uh, know to be Carter Page. Carter Page has, has confirmed that he's that individual. Just the former um, Trump campaign foreign policy officer. Right. Um, Carter Page is a U.S. citizen. Um, we have uh, heightened obligations to protect information about U.S. citizens that is collected in the course of foreign in 
intelligence or counterintelligence for precisely this purpose. You are given, uh, you have different authorities and different standards and are allowed to do different things in these contexts because there are heightened national security rationales. And the other, the sort of flip side of that is you have a heightened obligation to protect information about U.S. citizens. And there is, to my mind, no way to not read this leak as a politically motivated leak of classified information about a U.S. citizen. That is a civil liberties violation, full stop. That is the kind of leak that we would expect DOJ to be investigating and, and that we should be disturbed if DOJ wasn't investigating, right? So I think sort of we, it, it's worth taking a minute to say, this isn't a surface thing. This is, this is really serious stuff that they're talking about. Then the, the sort of the, so, so if, the, if the investigation itself is legitimate, then there's the question about sort of the investigative steps, and that's seizing this reporter's uh, records. So DOJ has a general policy, and, and this is not necessarily a departure from, uh, from the Obama administration, of only seizing reporters' records when, the, when, it's, when it's important and necessary, right? So they, they put a higher standard. They essentially say, look, in the course of a, of a, uh, of a legitimate investigation, we don't recognize any kind of you know reporter or, or journalistic privilege, and, and we will uh, seize these records when necessary, but we're going to be prudent in doing so. And so then there's a different conversation about, well, is this evidence of seizing reporters' records when it wasn't really necessary because there was other information, or is this a sign that sort of Sessions DOJ is going to be really, really forward-leaning? Does this have the side benefit of sort of chilling reporters? This is going to have a consequence. Fewer sources are going to to, to talk to reporters. So, so that is a, a complex question without a clear answer. It's rendered even more complicated by the fact that she was in a personal relationship. Now, reportedly, uh, he or, or in the indictment, um, there's reference to uh, conversations with four different journalists. This is the only journalist whose records have been seized. She's also the only journalist that was in a relationship with him. So you have to ask, well, did GOJ seize a reporter's records or did GOJ seize some Somebody's girlfriend's records. And so this is one of the, the problems with occupying a dual role in this space. It becomes really difficult to sort of say, okay, what exactly is going on here? And so, you know, there are more questions than answers. Um, we'll get to Shane's scoop from last night, which only makes things even crazier um, uh, in a minute. But there are more questions than answers. But every single sort of presentation of the facts is the most complex sort of uh, sort of um, presentation. And so it, it, it makes it really difficult. And it is a case in which if DOJ decides to flex its muscle here, and maybe they decide to flex its muscle for bad policy reasons, like wanting to chill you know, speech through aggressive leaks investigations, they're going to win because they have a facially legitimate reason and, and the law is on their side. So I, I really do think it's, um, it's just a, it's a really unfortunate thing. So I I guess my reaction to this was to see it as more of a continuation of what the Obama administration was doing in investigating leaks and specifically leaks to journalists. Um, it was something that uh, that you know people in Obama's own party criticized him for. It's certainly it was an issue that the press was concerned about, um, and so you know. Maybe this is an escalation, but it's a difference in degree, not in kind. That said, I guess the question I have here is about the seizing of material, because I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, 
that that's a first in this case, or at least that we know about. Um, and so I think your right to ask was uh, a reporter's information seized or was a girlfriend's information seized? And, and would we know if the three other reporters had their material seized? Is that something we would know absent, you know, good journalistic sleuthing? So Shane, let me sort of kick a, a fundamental question to you. Um, and, and look, um, I don't care who sleeps with who. I, I think, right, I, I think it's, it's. I'm always really nervous about sort of having these conversations, especially around young women in ways that are unfair. There is a question of sort of journalistic ethics here. And, and so uh, I've seen a lot of different opinions coming out. Although Obviously, you guys reported, didn't you, that she told the New York Times that he was not a source for her story? Well, she has said that. She's on record with so that. So when you have, obviously, you have some relationships with sources, you <clears throat> you know them, uh, there are disclosures, there's limits. Like, w- how should we be thinking about the, the basic journalistic ethics here? Look, I think the basic journalistic ethics are you don't sleep with sources. Um, and I, I think that that is... Uh, which is not to say that I'm trying to contradict Ali Watkins' Individual statement. sources of information or even people that are related to the beats you cover? Okay, so that's a great question. So I think that there is a – and we're taking Ali at her word that this individual is not a source. Um, if he were a source of information and she was in a romantic relationship with him on a beat that she covers, that is an absolute violation. I think there's not a newsroom in America that would employ you. Um, if that came to light. So it's important to remember that that is what she is saying. The Times is investigating. I have zero doubt that they will try to ascertain the the, the ground truth of that statement, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But you get at this really interesting dilemma, Susan, which is, you know, I know reporters, for instance, who cover um, the Pentagon and have been involved with uh, um, uh, service members. So if you're dating, you know, a Marine corporal and you're covering the Army, is that a conflict? What if you're actually, you know, covering the Marine Corps? I mean, not the people to cover one service or another so so narrowly. But, you know, how close do you have to get before this becomes something that you've got to step away from? Uh, If you are a uh, a White House correspondent and you have a spouse who works in the White House, I mean, those have been situations where in the past a number of news organizations uh, have said you have to step away from your beat. Uh, uh, I think it was Michelle Norris, right, who actually, I think, came off of a beat at NPR because her husband was involved in Democratic politics. And there, I think it was NPR. People will correct me if I'm wrong, but taking a really, you know, strict reading of this of like, you know, we don't even want you commenting on reporting on national affairs when your husband works in the same area. But then there have been, I know, of relationships that people have had, frankly, on the beat, and I won't name names, where I'm stunned that their organization allows them to continue reporting on something because they are married to somebody. I mean, you'll name names once we stop reporting. Oh, sure. Once the day starts, I'm going to tell you totally who that was. Um, But this is really, I mean, this is something that journalists have to do as a corporate policy. Each company has to make up its mind. Um, But really, as a profession, we have to be, I think, really self-policing about this. Because to your earlier point, you know, when this is a story like, let's just be completely honest, this looks really bad for journalists, okay? And I think that all the people involved would agree with that, frankly. Um, And at a time when the president routinely is telling people, as he did again today in a tweet, uh, that the enemy of the people, he called us now the biggest enemy of the people, was the media. Bigger than little rocket man. Right, exactly. Because they know there's no nuclear threat anymore. Don't forget. I mean, we checked that box. But I I think this is really, I mean, it's, it's a huge ethical problem, but it all goes to the question of whether or not our readers can trust us and whether we have ulterior motives. And, you know, for the president, for all of his misguided criticisms, I mean, is channeling the tremendous dissatisfaction 
uh, uh, and um, um, what's the right word, lack of mistrust, the mistrust yeah. that so many people in the United States today have with source uh, with journalists. I, probably most people would be surprised to find out that even an allegation that a reporter was sleeping with their source was all that novel because they probably think it happens all the time. Maybe right. I'm being too cynical. Well, if but, they watch House of Cards. Right. Well, and there's been all kinds of interesting, you know, House of Cards, you know, references uh, made in the past couple, in about a week or so. One other, Susan alluded to the scoop that we had last night at the Post that we should talk about because this makes it even weirder. But also is another example crazy of potential bananas. Right, I this is so the crazy bananas. Technical term. <laughs> technical term. Yes. So months before Ali Watkins is approached by people from the FBI who were investigating <clears throat> uh, leaks of information that eventually end in the Wolf indictment uh, or lead to it, she's approached in June of 2017 by a man whose name we know now is Jeffrey A. Rambo. Of course, yes, his name Why is really Rambo. Right who is a Customs and Border Patrol agent who meets with her and basically questions her about how she goes about her reporting, how does she get confidential sources to talk to her. Um, it becomes, I think, clear in the course of the interview that this person is pursuing a line of inquiry uh, as a federal agent, which is very strange because, uh, A, you don't ask reporters usually about their sources, and B, um, Customs and Border Patrol agents don't do leak investigations, so that's a little weird, uh, and then proceeds to uh, basically grill her about her relationship with Jim Wolf, which she appeared to already know about, and then told her through that he, travel records. through travel records, he said, I know that you traveled with him on this date to these places, the information was accurate, raising the question of whether this individual, Agent Rambo, uh, used his privileges as a CBP agent to look up her travel records and her entry and exit records and those potentially of Jim Wolf as well. Um, that's a potential violation of the Privacy Act to say nothing of ethics laws and internal DHS and CBP and the regulations. Civil liberties of the and the civil liberties citizens. of these two individuals, right. Uh, we do know that in the course of the conversation, he expressed to her that he thought that the Trump administration was really eager to crack down on leaks. That, of course, raises the specter that this was somehow politically motivated, which is utterly chill. Uh, as well, um, as if this story couldn't get any messier, that sort of now is compounded with it. Uh, and, and I think that it kind of goes, we again don't know what Rambo's motivations were. He declined to comment to us when we reached him. Uh, I think he was surprised to hear from us. Uh, but uh, it, it kind of compounds this problem of both lack of trust in the way the reporters go about doing their business, but also the fear that we have, I think justifiably so, based on this episode, that people in official positions of power are going to try uh, and intimidate us or chill us from doing our job and are potentially poking around in our private information. So if the FBI were conducting an investigation of leaks to this particular reporter and they wanted information from other agencies, they would put in a request to DHS, for example, for travel records, so right? They, they wouldn't be investigating a leaks to a reporter, right? It wouldn't say like, Shane Harris has too many scoops these days, like, let's figure out. <laughs> it would be that a piece of true and accurate and genuinely classified information appeared in public, and then there would be an investigation into, uh, into how that disclosure became public. Um, I honestly, there there are so there are so many question marks here that it's I, I'm I'm hesitant to to even sort of speculate because honestly I I, I don't know what the hell is going yeah. on. I cannot come up with any set of facts by which a customs and border patrol agent is legitimately involved in this investigation. Sure, is legitimately speaking to her or legitimately access these travel records. Like there's there's. 
yes, individual pieces. You could you could imagine, right, if there was an FBI investigation, they might have requested particular things, but but there's no there's no story I can tell, at least based on what's publicly available, that makes any no. sense at all. Right. I'm I mean it, of course, this is in the realm of speculation, but I can envision a scenario whereby appropriate investigatory authorities in the Department of Justice put a, a, an information request into DHS, and the officer who implements and returns mm. that request then freelances because who knows why right. he's trying to brown nose to his boss or whatever. And, you know, and that's how this ends up happening. However, it ended up happening. It's deeply creepy and i think you know it's always the case i imagine shane that when somebody approaches you from within the government and says hey i'd like to talk to you i have some things to tell you or whatever you never know what that person's motives are you don't know if they're approaching you under false pretenses right right but you presume that they're coming to you ideally with the idea that oh maybe this will be a source and not and now while i have you here in this restaurant i'd like to turn the tables on you and interrogate you yeah and i think you know the questions we're asking you know here are exactly the ones we've been asking in the newsroom which is you know how did this guy rambo get onto this case i mean he says that he read an article she wrote and then uh, seemed to have looked up or it seems that he looked up her travel records and he got onto her that way um, I will aren't just allowed say, to do that. I mean, yeah, we should just so, be clear. So, so, for, so there's there's a scenario in which, and I'm just going to purely speculate here, but where this guy just gets a bright idea and he stumbles onto a reporter who actually did have a relationship with a Senate staffer who later ends up getting indicted and accused of leaking information to said reporter. Possible. Um, that's a let's maybe he's just that good of an investigator. Um, I will note that in the indictment of Wolf, it makes reference to FBI agents asking him if he had any international travel with any reporters. Maybe that's just a coinky dink. Um, we there's a lot that we don't know about why Jeffrey Rambo, who while he was not working for ZBP, it was apparently had a failed career as a brew pub owner in San Diego. Of course, true of story. Course. Decided to get on to this, but that just seems – I'm a little skeptical that somebody like that just wakes up one day and decides to start um, looking into people. I, I want to know more about how he got that bright idea. Maybe he watched too many White House-produced Hollywood trailers. Maybe. Maybe. Um, speaking of um, – let me think. How am I going to take away this one? I'm so bad today. Speaking of sagas – Speaking of complicated, speaking of complicated, speaking of international travel, speaking of international (laughs) travel, there was an article about other countries, and we're going to talk about it now. (laughs) Uh, God, I am off. I take one week off, and the Segway machine just grinds to a halt. Um, Adam Entos over at the New Yorker had a a very lengthy and detailed kind of stem winder uh, that largely, I think, uh, is asking the question about where did Trump's Middle East policy come from. Uh, and Tammy, it seems like Adam concludes that uh, Israel and the UAE uh, have exercised enormous influence over the worldview and over the actions of the Trump administration, which I suppose sort of at a 35,000 foot level uh, to those who have been following this is not that surprising. But, you know, Adam really goes deep into that relationship and tells that story and unearths a whole lot of revelations. Um, so as particularly as someone who 
watches closely and lives in this space, you know, what do you come away with this now appreciating that you didn't know before about the dynamics that are in play in Middle East policy, in particular the U.S. strategy against Iran, which is a huge part of this story? Sure. So, I mean, there are actually several policy areas that this story touches on. One is U.S. policy toward Iran, for sure. Uh, one is U.S. policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, you know, mediating Middle East peace. And then a narrower but very important feature of the story is the decision of President Trump to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And all of this, it turns out, um, uh, is uh, influenced by a much broader, more intensive set of engagements than we knew from the Israeli government and the Emirati government, sometimes working together in ways we did not know. So I think my my first big takeaway from this story is that Israeli-Emirati bilateral cooperation, not only on intelligence and counterterrorism, which we have heard about and read about in the press, um, but also on influencing American policy in the Middle East, this coordination has been going on for a long time, and there are some Emirati-Israeli diplomatic contacts that are revealed in this story that date back to the mid-1990s wow. uh, were the first direct meetings. And so that in and of itself as a Middle East diplomacy junkie is fascinating. Um, but the other thing I think is really fascinating here is Entis gives us some detail talking to sources around the president, around his campaign about what you know what was the attitude he brought to the Middle East when he came when he won the presidency when he came in as president and it's dramatically different from the policy that we see today and that in and of itself is pretty interesting so there's this paragraph early on in the story uh, where Entos quotes uh, a, a Trump confidant um, who said Trump quite honestly had very little interest in meddling in the Middle East in general and very little interest from a philosophical point of view. It was all of this was an annoyance. The Sunnis, the Shias, the Jews, the Palestinians have been doing this for thousands of years. And I, Donald Trump, am not going to continue to the add to the already outrageous investment of trillions of dollars in a region that breeds and funds terrorists against America while we starve our infrastructure investments at home. So if that's Trump's starting position, you know, now we have him a year and a half in office with um, at least formally a commitment to keep American troops in Syria in order to push back on Iran, uh, pulling the United States out of a nuclear deal that that his predecessor negotiated in part to enable some American disengagement from the security problems of the Middle East. Uh, and a, a President Trump, who has come in so firmly on the side of the Israelis in their conflict with the Palestinians, that the Palestinians aren't even talking to Washington anymore. And all of this is sort of leaving those American allies, the Emiratis and the Israelis, as well as the Saudis, to kind of arrange matters in the region more or less as they would wish uh, with with his blessing. And that's a fascinating kind of transformation. So the story Entis tells is about... Um, it's got a lot of juicy bits, including uh, senior Israeli intelligence officers providing briefings to uh, Trump campaign 
officials during the transition, which is a real breach of protocol. Uh, then as soon as the administration's inaugurated, Israeli intelligence uh, being shared with President Trump and his advisors to demonstrate how the Obama administration engaged in perfidious behavior at the United Nations against Israel. That's pretty unprecedented. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's all before we get to the some of these um, meetings who's that have been reported about uh, Emiratis uh, and Russians meeting in the Seychelles with Trump administration officials and so on. Uh, I'll just leave you with one more fascinating little tidbit uh, that I think has not been previously reported, which is. Sheldon Adelson, the mega Republican donor, the one that all the Republican primary candidates for president were courting assiduously, um, he holds back from endorsing Trump, even when it's clear that Trump is going to get the nomination. And Entis describes the Trump campaign realizing that if they couldn't get Adelson on board, they were never going to get the establishment donors to come in behind them. Uh, even if they won the nomination. And so what is it that Adelson makes the quid pro quo from Trump for his support in the election campaign? According to this story, a promise to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. In other words, it wasn't an ask from Israel. It wasn't an ask from evangelicals. It was an ask from Sheldon Adelson. And Entos goes on to describe through other reporting how Adelson gets increasingly frustrated that Trump takes so long to fulfill this promise. Um, and so I I just, it, it's a... It's a wonderfully detailed story about the role of individuals in policymaking, yeah. the role of intelligence in policymaking, and the way these um, these really parochial interests can combine to alter American policy. Well, and now we have uh, Jerry Kushner with his newly minted security clearance, which he's taken out for a spin now going back into the region. I mean, the peace process, as far as, I guess, Susan, he sees it, is still active. I'm curious... In, in, in kind of understanding all of the, the political machinations that are going on at the senior levels between Israeli officials and the Trump campaign and, you know, all of the enmity they share with Obama, I keep thinking about, you know, the sort of the famously unruffled uh, relationship that goes on at the working level between intelligence and military officials where we sort of believe that it's kind of this placid kind of calm space, even though the leaders at the top are engaged in all kinds of, you know, shenanigans and, and back and forths and duels. But I don't know, does something about this strike you as different? I mean, this is really, this seems to me like the, the way that, you know, the, the allegation clearly in the end of this piece is that the Israelis were using their intelligence capabilities to benefit a presidential campaign. Uh, that of, of, of uh, then-candidate Trump, and then, of course, all of the backroom negotiation that goes on with the Israelis in the Trump campaign to try and scuttle the UN resolution during the transition, that seems qualitatively different than what we're used to. I think it is different. I would put the, our relationship with the Israelis in a different bucket than the way we think about sort of traditional intelligence ally relationships. It's always been... Uh, a, a, a tense and, and, and complex relationship, obviously a very important one. Obviously, there are lots of shared security goals there. Um, uh, but I don't uh, – a lot of unusual things or, or unusual things happen in the context of that relationship that would be um, – uh, that we don't see elsewhere, or at least haven't seen elsewhere in the past. Um, I, you know, I do think one of the sort of the, the surprising things – or I, I guess it shouldn't be surprising. It was surprising to see it in print um, – is how uh, – 
Netanyahu is also taking advantage of how little they know, right? This is one of the things that um, it's, I think it's actually a quote from the piece that they, you know, they 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 know who the they know who Kushner is, um, you know, they they know all the the various positions, and they know how little they know on the issues, right? And so the the fundamental opportunity here is ignorance and lack of process and the ability to come in at these people who are convinced that they just have the answers because they're smart people and how easy it is to sort of take them for a ride. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it, perhaps it shouldn't be surprising, but to the extent that Jared Kushner has been sold to us as someone who's, you know, uh, incredibly savvy and sophisticated on these issues, he pretty clearly isn't. And uh, and other players in the region uh, pretty clearly understand that and actually are, are taking advantage of sort of his, uh, his ignorance. You know, I think the other thing that the story really shows is the degree, the mixing of politics and national security in a way that we haven't seen before. And this goes all the way back to that original decision to put Steve Bannon on the NSC um, or on the principles committee of the NSC, right? Remember way back in the good old days, we were talking about Bannon, um, right? And, and, and one of the things that was so alarming about that decision was there had always been this area of sort of core national security that, that we believed had to be insulated from politics. At the very least, you were supposed to pretend that it was insulated from politics. And so what we've seen sort of over the past 18 months is, is the extent to which, no, there is no difference to these people. The, the, the PR stuff and, and Trump's individual, uh, you know, impulses and, uh, and all of it is just, it's a big mix for them. There is nothing that is pre-political. There is nothing that's sort of sacrosanct. And, and now, you know, um, uh, if we look, for example, at um, uh, Comey's account of that initial briefing on the Russian interference and being so surprised that after these career intelligence officials had given this briefing, they turn immediately into sort of the politics and optics. You know, they, they didn't even wait for them to leave the room. And I think this is... Um, uh, you know, it's an, it's another version of that. And it's something that we've sort of we've lost focus on, but I think motivates a lot that occurs in our space and, and, and is really pretty disturbing and has some, some really pretty disturbing consequences. You know, the third thing, and, and Tammy mentioned this, um, this says a ton about what was going on during the transition, um, really deeply inappropriate contacts. And whenever we talk about, you know, why was Flynn lying about his uh, his contacts with Kislyak, the unmasking scandal, right, appears to be related to this visit from the Emiratis with the Trump transition team, uh, you know, a breach of protocol. So much of sort of the original sin of this administration and original sins that in some cases have blossomed into either actual investigations or sort of or distractionary or diversionary scandals is born from this original period in which they are, you know, surprise elected and then treat the Obama administration as the adversary, treat the U.S. intelligence community as the adversary. And we see that in so many different places, both from uh, who they're actually speaking to, the attempts to hide it, right? Remember Kushner trying to use the Russian uh, uh, embassy in order to have that back-channel communication? in order to hide those communications from the U.S. intelligence services, right? And so I think what we're seeing here is 
the degree to which that occurred in a lot of different places, and, and we haven't reckoned with it at all. We've reckoned with it in this very narrow area related to the Russia investigation yeah. because they've sort of been baked into their positions and baked into their lies about what occurred. But it was happening on all kinds of different in all kinds of different ways, and and now it's just the story, and, and no one's ever gone back to talk about why that was wrong, um, uh, to get an accounting about why they thought that the, this was basically appropriate, and so I, I'm. I'm I'm struck that that this story is not uh, making a, a bigger splash there. I, I guess just like we've moved too far forward in time, and and so you know who cares about what happened you know back in uh, in the transition period? But it, that is still alarming, and I think we're still paying the, the price for it. So I I think that's a really really interesting point, and I particularly like your emphasis on how the Trump campaign and the Trump transition's lack of personnel and structure and process essentially left the president elect open and vulnerable to a, a snow job. It would be the the portrait painted by this article, although I'm sure others would say he became genuinely convinced that he agreed with these arguments. Um, but he didn't he didn't he wasn't hearing anything else. He had no knowledge base from which to act. And that's a, a staffing failure and a profit process failure. What I think is going to be interesting in a forward looking way, Susan, is that uh we have these are two major partners of the United States, and that's probably not going to change. These are going to remain two major partners of the United States behaving in a way toward the still in office Obama administration uh, that is sneaky and duplicitous and then behaving toward them after they left office in a way that's deeply betraying of confidences, you know, going to the new Trump administration and saying, we're going to tell tales on the previous administration and all the bad things they did. And I just have to believe that that's going to have implications for the way future administrations interact with Israel and with the Emirates to, to understand that these two leaders and these two governments were willing to act this way toward their most important security guaranteeing hegemonic ally uh, is a real abuse of the relationship, um, I think. And I, I can't help but think it's going to have long-term implications uh, for future presidents. All right, real quick before we get to object lessons, uh, some stories we're not covering. I like this feature that we're doing now. All right, lightning, <laughs> lightning round. Okay. State Department official is keeping a list of people who appear disloyal to the administration. This was so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, A burn a, book, if you will. Yeah, this is a foreign policy scoop. This is we could almost just have a segment on this, but we can't. But yeah. go check out that story. There's a naughty list, a burn book, uh, an agreement between Greece and Macedonia on the latter's official name. I, you know, I have to say I love this because until now Macedonia has sat at the UN under T for the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, and now they get their own name. All right, good for you. Congratulations. Nice. Shorter guys. business cards. Uh, Italy's populist government refuses to allow migrants uh, uh, to land on its shores. Monstrous. Rescued migrants. Monstrous. But Spain let them in. And somehow Thank unsurprising, you, right? Uh, massive demonstrations in Jordan and $2.5 in aid from the Gulf states. At what price? What? That's a lot. That's a, Yes, that's two and a half times what the United States gives Jordan. So we'll see what uh, King who's, what King Abdullah had to give in exchange for that. All right. There's an escalation in Yemen by the UAE as the UN, UN objects, and Afghanistan is blowing up again. Wee! 
All right, we're making light of global conflict, but seriously. But seriously, Afghanistan getting, is blowing up again. Yeah. And are our Canadian NATO allies going to stay there with us now? Oh, I know. Well, mm. not with any American milk, that's for sure. That tied it all together. <laughs> Thanks. There you go. What goes around comes around. Whew. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Susan, do you want to go first? I do. So um, my object lesson is an article in Lawfare. Um, an excellent article that we published earlier this week um, called The Terrible Arguments Against the Constitutionality of the Mueller Investigation, written by one George Conway, uh, who is the husband of Kellyanne Conway. That Conway? That Conway, the very same. Um, and I would commend the article to you, um, one, because it is a, a well-articulated um, uh, and I think really uh, important explanation of uh, why the Mueller investigation is is constitutional and legitimate. Um, I also think it's interesting, um, uh, not because George Conway is married to Kellyanne Conway, but because George Conway is a prominent conservative uh, uh, lawyer um, and is sort of... Uh, uh, we've seen uh, a lot of different degrees of sort of anxiety coming out, from, um, you know, from sort of the Federalist Society, uh, a group of conservative lawyers. Um, and, and I really do think it says something when people who, who have quite a bit to lose, um, you know, decide to be principled enough to, to sort of put their um, put their thoughts and, and their genuine legal read uh, uh, to to paper or uh, or the Internet uh, kind of consequences be damned. And so um, I, you know, good for you, George Conway and um, and you. Your, uh, your stand on these issues, I think, shines quite a light on uh, on many of your colleagues who uh, maybe share your views, but not your uh, courage in making them public. He's a good writer, too. He's a very yeah. good writer. No, it's a great piece. And I, I also just found myself thinking, this is probably a little unfair, um, as I was reading it, that he, uh, if he and the author, uh, who's another prominent Federalist Society uh, lawyer, the author against whom he's arguing, if they were women, then news coverage of this article would be catfight in the Federalist Society, right? Um, But what we have here is very reasoned debate. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to share an object, a little bit of a downer, apologize, but it's for a good cause. So uh, the, the CDC came out with a report last week, actually, that suicide rates have increased by 25% in the United States over nearly two decades, ending in 2016, 25 states experienced a rise in suicides by more than 30 percent. And truly the most disheartening statistic of all was that suicide is now the leading cause of death between individuals 18 to 34, which I just found so incredibly dispiriting. But I raise it because I think it's interesting. We talk a lot on the show about areas where public health policy actually does intersect with homeland security policy in the context of you know WMD prevention, uh, uh, the efforts that uh, increased around outbreak surveillance and mitigation, especially following 9-11 with the anthrax attacks. We kind of talk about Ebola as a, a national security topic now. I saw a lot of commentary on this story that I thought was really compelling and raised a good question, which was why are we not applying public health policy uh, and the kind of the regimen of treatments and diagnoses and treating mental illness as we would a physical illness. Uh, and there were people who were uh, doctors in some of these articles I read who were advocating for that saying, look, when we treat diseases, disease rates go down. So why can't we treat suicide like a disease? It has reached an epidemic proportion. And I think the data really raises this question of whether it's actually a national crisis. Uh, I, I noted this on Facebook. You know, I've had two very close family members who killed themselves. It's a personal crisis anytime. 
time it happens. But we often tend to treat it. I don't know. We cleave off mental health and we put it in the bucket of family issues and we're not sort of speaking about it in an epidemiological kind of context uh, with real public health policy tools that we know how to use and that we've been using for decades. Uh, and I just wonder if now this will, this report will occasion a different context for talking about this and, you know, and maybe some actual rational approaches for dealing with it. Oh, God, let's hope so. Yeah. All right. Tomorrow. So um, my object lesson is, a, is an object, uh, and it's thematically uh, related in the sense that uh, next week, both I and the other Wittis will be absent from rational Aww. security because we're traveling. But we have a treat in store. We're not going to tell you what we it is, though. Ooh, surprise. Mm -hmm. um, ben and I will be in Israel next week. Uh, ben will be uh, leading a national security law program there, and I will be tagging along and doing some research on populism in Israeli politics. Um, that's such a good trip, too. Yeah. And that's right. You did it. Yeah, it's so great. You've done it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I've never done it, so I'm coming along. Um, but it's partly vacation for me, and that will give me a chance to visit my favorite Israeli uh, jewelry designer, Shlomit Ophir. And so my object lesson for this week is a bracelet I bought at her store, oh gosh, probably six or seven years ago. She's got three um, outlets in the Tel Aviv area. You can also shop for her stuff online. And it's uh, very cool, very light. Uh, very sculptural and very fun. It's, it's beautiful. very beautiful. It's like gold lattice work. I love that. But right. kind of mid-century modern, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, yeah. it has a kind of a Danish modern kind of feel. I wish I could wear bracelets like that. <laughs> you can. My you giant, can wear my giant wrists. Let it out. You can do it. <laughs> my thick wrists. My meaty wrists. You don't really wear a watch, actually. No, I don't wear a watch. Yes. You know, I, I, get, I have very delicate skin. <laughs> well, speaking of delicate... <laughs> endings i don't have one for you today <laughs> we're just at the end of the podcast <laughs> we are at the end of it all this is it's than been it a long week <laughs> and it's wednesday is a production of lawfare you can find us on twitter at ratl security you can find our show page someplace out there probably not in san francisco but you can is. find us on Facebook now. We have, eventually, we're going to move this over. You can we're making progress us. on it. We are making slow incremental progress, much like North Korea's denuclearization. <laughs> we're in talks. We're in talks. <laughs> <laughs> there is no verifiable regime in place to see if the show page has been moved, uh, much like North Korean denuclearization. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and their new hot jazz orchestra, the Singapore Swing. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Go for that. Wouldn't you go see a band called Singapore Swing? Yeah. Yeah. I bet even Not Trump, if Donald would Trump do that. Was playing. Yeah. I'd, even, I'd even have a Singapore Swing while I watch that mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. Maybe sling two. Sling while you swing? Sling while you swing, baby. Uh, our music, of course, is performed by Sophia Yan, who, she's not in Singapore. She's in Hawaii. She's a world yeah. traveler. She's a world traveler. A global citizen. But she could totally, like, do keys for a hot jazz band. Yes. Easily do it. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.